Tomorrow is the last day of one of the biggest celebrations in the Jewish festival year. And if you are a child who is raised in Judaism or you had great connection with the uh, Jewish faith, as my children did growing up in uh, the particular suburb of Chicago where we grew up, they went to as many bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs as they did birthdays and all. And uh, boy, let me tell you, they know how to party. Holy moly. If you've never been to a bar or bat mitzvah, that's the coming of age of the boys and the girls. It's a full-blown uh, wedding type of reception, it, catered hotel. I mean, it, it's a big deal. They know how to do it right. Well, uh, again, as a child, though, growing up in the Jewish faith, not me. It almost sounded like I was talking about I grew up in the Jewish faith. I didn't. But if you were a child growing up in, in Judaism... You really look forward to Hanukkah because unlike our day of Christmas, which is just one grand day, if you will, of, of gift giving, in Hanukkah, they get a gift daily for eight days. And tomorrow, just coincidentally, happens to be the last day of that festival of Hanukkah. Well, I wonder how many of us in here this morning, if I were to ask you, just in a couple of sentences, if that, uh, what, what did, do you even know what Hanukkah is celebrated for? What it is? It's a, it's an occasion in history that is celebrated. And let me just, I didn't do this first service, but I'm just curious. Let me see your hand if you know what Hanukkah is about. Okay, honestly, that's better than I would have expected. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to watch a, a very short video and Instead of uh, hearing my explain it in brief, we're going to hear it from the mouth of a rabbi. But I want to warn you, I want you to listen to the words of the rabbi when she comes on. Listen very carefully. All right? By the way, I love that last kid to speak there. What a, what a heart. But did you catch it? Second service, though you may be, brighter than the first service. Much more awake. Rested up. (laughs) Well, Rabbi Fischl starts her explanation with, as the myth goes. Uh Uh-huh. And then she tells the story... You know, considering what what she prefaces it with, she considers the story of the mythical miracle of the oil lasting through the eight days of celebration. So I want you to imagine for a moment our director of children's ministries, Janet Johnson, gathering the children together one of these Sunday mornings to tell them the Christmas story. And she begins by saying, now, children, as the myth of Christmas goes... The baby Jesus was conceived by Mary without a husband, and then he was mythically born and mythically became God and became the mythical Savior of mankind. As the rabbi concludes her explanation with a a warm, embracing smile, she states, whether it is true or not, I love that that is what our children and our families focus on. How that a story about conflict, violence, and injustice ends up being light and how we can bring light and love and justice to the world, whether it is true or not. So, how about this? Just 
my doctor tells me that my stage four melanoma has clearly metastasized, but it will complete reverse course if I eat a four ounce helping of carrots every day. And you know, I got thinking about what he said to me as I was walking out. Whether it's true or not, I love that it gives me such hope and focus. I don't think so. I love that that is what our children and our families focus on. How that a story about conflict, violence, and injustice ends up being about light and how we can bring light and love and justice to the world. Listen to the word of the Lord, beginning with the prophet Isaiah chapter 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. One of the messianic texts in the Old Testament referring to the future coming of Messiah. But again, in another prophet, Zephaniah, the Lord speaking to his people is foretelling of not just a day, but the day when the Lord God is going to come himself as the light of the world and how he will bring justice upon the world, for only he can do so. In Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning in verse 5, I've abbreviated this to underscore the pronouns with purpose. Here's what it says. The Lord is righteous within her. He will do no injustice. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He does not fail. Therefore, wait for me. For the day when I rise up as a witness, indeed, I will give to the people's purified lips. I will remove from your midst. I will leave among you. I have taken away. I will gather those. I am going to deal. I will save. I will turn. I will bring. I will give when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Zephaniah the prophet is not prophesying a lot of encouragement and good things in the rest of that whole book. And here he says, do not expect justice in your life, but know that there is a day when injustice will be gone and perfect justice will reign for the one who is coming will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. If a person claiming to be Jewish had a biblical understanding of their Judaism, they would never take offense at a Christian wishing them Merry Christmas. And they would totally understand themselves that Hanukkah is not a replacement or an alternative celebration for Christmas at this time of year, but it is, in fact, a very important and legitimate and not mythical celebration of remembrance for a person of the Jewish faith. It shouldn't surprise us that people of a Jewish faith are no different than people of the Christian faith when it comes to a lack of understanding concerning what it is that they and we are supposed to believe. Who do you think of if you think about the greatest Christian apostle that lived? Arguably, I would say it is the Apostle Paul certainly the most prolific writers in the New Testament to the various churches, who by his own words emphasize his own Jewishness. 
And yet here he is, the mightiest, greatest Christian apostle, emphasizing his Jewishness. In the, his letter to the Corinthians, in the second Corinthians chapter 11, he's getting pretty fired up concerning the Pharisees who were continually haranguing him and dissing him and trying to delegitimize him amongst the population. And they were pretty much buying into it as well. And so the Pharisees stood there as touting their Judaism and their Jewish faith and how they were the true religious leaders among religious leaders and all of that. And Paul gets worked up because Paul himself is a Jew. He says, are they, referring to the Pharisees, are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? Well, so am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. And the question, then, of who is a true Jew and who is a poser is a major issue for the apostle. And he addresses it in his letters to the Christians not just at Corinth, but also at Galatia and at Ephesus and at Philippi and Colossae and Rome. This is what he's alluding to when he opens the third chapter in his letter to the church at Philippi, writing, To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. So why would the beliefs of the Jews be such an issue to the Christians of the aforementioned churches such that Paul is compelled to bring it up as a recurring issue in his letters to the churches? Well, think of it in terms of our day, where there has truly been, over the centuries, there's been a a real uh, despicable um, and perverse commingling of many and very differing elements of different belief systems. Yet over time, they've all been kind of packaged and bundled together under the name of Christian. I cannot truly tell you how many times in my life as a believer since my early 20s that somebody in conversation would ask me, so why are there so many different Christian religions? And it's like, no, there aren't. But I totally understand what they mean. And the answer is it's because of the myriad of churches today that wear the name of Christian but bear little or no resemblance to the faith described in the Christian manual called the Bible. Today, the apparent reshaping of the Christian religion continues with a a perpetual dumbing down of what used to be clear principles to not just Christians but even to non-Christians in the culture. As I've said many times, you can truly find a Christian church in name that will endorse just about every immoral precept of behavior, sexuality, and greed that just in my lifetime were once universally condemned. And today, it's gotten so bad that there are entire denominations, wayward though they be, that they actually boast that they are ONA churches. And they put it on their marquee. We have a church here in town before it was recently purchased or trying to be purchased by a museum, thank the Lord. Right in the corner, it would say ONA. It means they are open and affirming. So open and affirming means that the church welcomes everyone. Now, don't jump to conclusions. Listen to me. It means they welcome everyone regardless of the particular lifestyle sins to which they are ensnared. Again, listen to me carefully. 
This is not merely a good trait for a church. It is a necessary trait for a biblical church. We could very easily and legitimately put an O, if anybody knew what it would mean, an O down in the corner of our big sign out there, meaning that we too are an open church. And why do I say that's a necessary trait? The church is the body of Christ on earth, and as the body of Christ on earth, it should welcome everyone as we do here, regardless of where they are on that spiritual journey. We don't have a sin detector at the door, which flags everyone coming in here with sins to which they are ensnared. (laughs) And that's a good thing. Or there wouldn't be anybody in here. Nor up here on stage. The church's very mission, coming from the mouths of the Savior Himself, is to seek and to save those who are lost. And those who are lost don't even know yet that there is a standard of holiness. The gospel of Jesus never says, clean yourselves up before coming to me for help. The point is that we can't clean ourselves up. Without the Holy Spirit who comes to us only as we throw our sin-laden self on the mercies of the Lord, we are helpless at which time He then proceeds to clean us up. But even that is inadequate, which is why He gives to us His very own perfection and righteousness and holiness. Every Christ-honoring, Bible-believing church needs to be an open church. But a biblical church... A Christian church will not, should not, must not affirm anyone's sins, helping them to embrace them, helping them to feel good about them, encouraging and enabling them to make their sin a permanent part of their lifestyle, yet still profess to be a follower of Jesus. John writes in 1 John, Beloved, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. This is why the words repent and repentance, which mean to turn about, occurs over 50 times in the New Testament. In an ONA church, the only sin they seem to be willing to label as sin is calling anything sin. So it's no wonder, some people wonder why, there's all these different Christian religions. So the reason that Paul is exercised about warning the Philippians and all the other churches that he writes to about it, about certain Jews that he calls people of the false circumcision is that they were the equivalent of what I often call to refer to as the wayward church of our day, believing and teaching another gospel, to use Paul's phrasing to the church at Galatia. He writes in Galatians 1, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
And then Paul says something that is quite startling to Jew and Gentile alike. He writes in verse 3 that he and the Philippian followers of Jesus understand. We're talking about a letter to the Christian church at Galatia. And he writes telling them that they are the real Jews. Even as Christians, they were the true circumcision, worshiping God for his generous offer of salvation by completely securing the way for our eternity into heaven. The very Jews, the very religious Jews called Pharisees are labeled by Paul oftentimes in the scriptures as the false circumcision and are the equivalent of our false Christians of our day. Now, if you're confused at this point a bit, just stick with me a bit. Uh, Hopefully it'll become clearer. Paul says in verse 3, the counterfeit Jews are the false circumcision because they put their trust in their own flesh, in their own abilities, in their own outward manifestations of their religiosity. He explains what he means by this. And it's going to take me just a few minutes here to get us there, showing that Christmas really is a Jewish holiday. The only hope of heaven for anyone is to live a life of perfection. Not just to live a life of relative goodness or doing the best that you can. That is not what the scriptures teach with clarity. But rather that only one who can live an absolutely sinless, perfect life are saved unto eternity. But once Adam and Eve had sinned, Heaven was forfeited, not just for Adam and Eve, but for all of mankind because they are the progenitors. The, they are ones through whom the entire population of the earth would come. And so they and we and everybody have inherited that sin gene, if you will. And once sin entered the world, there was no hope of heaven since sin Again, becoming an inherited trait disqualified everyone from that point on. So now we go back again to the very beginning. Enter a religious system that is designed by God himself for the people in the Old Testament that he would call Israel, consisting of incessant sacrifices and arduous regulations and unbending rules. Every sacrifice, though, and every rule was designed by God to be an instruction. It was designed by God to instruct his people how desperately and how hopelessly sinful they were, and because of that, how absolutely, utterly lost they were and in need of a Savior. At the same time, In that desperation, they were to find real hope and confidence that one day the Messiah would in fact come to fix the broken relationship that sin brought between God and man once for all time, securing reconciliation and the certainty of eternal life to all who would receive the gift of God called the Messiah. Well, what happened? Well, those who understood their own wretchedness clung to that hope of the coming Messiah, who is the Redeemer, who is the Savior, living in grateful faithfulness to Jehovah God, looking forward to the day when Yeshua HaMashiach in Hebrew, Jesus, the Messiah, would in fact come. 
But until that day, great pains had to be taken in order to keep the anger of God against sin at bay. You see, God has never stopped hating sin. God today, right now, at this moment, still hates sin. And one of the worst errors of orthopraxy, not orthodoxy, orthodoxy is right thinking. Orthopraxy means right living or right behavior. And one of the worst errors of orthopraxy in the church this history has been misleading the multitudes over the eons of, of time that sin is suddenly today, now in the New Testament, post-Christian, that sin is irrelevant because Jesus came and paid the price. Meaning sin is no longer a concern to God Almighty that God no longer is exercised by it, that he just kind of winks at sin and sloughs it off or just ignores it. God still hates sin today. In the New Testament, in Romans chapter 1, Paul right out of the gate says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So condensing, one of the unique rituals that God commanded the Jews to observe in fulfilling God's laws was that of circumcision. And so that particular ritual that they would go through all with their little boys that marked out was the sign of the covenant. That became their focal point and their confidence and their spiritual pride. It was their mark of distinction of being God's favored ones. And like many New Testament Christians today, that is what they put their trust in. They put their trust in their own mark of distinction and looking religious and faithful. Their meticulous adherence to the laws of God pertaining to all these things is what became their assurance for God basically liking them. But again, the writer of the New Testament in the book called the book of the Hebrews explains the purposes of all of the Old Testament systems of rituals and rites and laws. In chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews says that the law, since it's only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. It was never God's intention that the arduous rites of the sacrificial system of Judaism, that was never his intention that they were going to be saved by that, but rather only provided a temporary stay, a holding of God's wrath that he wanted to pour out upon sin because his holy nature demands that. And so he said, no, this is what you will do to... to Keep and appease me to keep me from pouring out my wrath until the one who comes and will be the one sacrifice good for all time and for all who believe. Not to be repeated year after year. The writer continues in Hebrews 10, but rather in those sacrifices, there is a reminder 
of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So remember now what I said. The religious system that God designed in the Old Testament was entirely to underscore the people's utter inability to appease God's demand for perfection, thus driving them to a Savior. The system of sacrifices and rules for holy living are collectively what we call Judaism. And it was, again, only ever intended to accomplish two things. First, it was to remind them that they can never be good enough to merit or earn God's favor. And secondly, it was to heighten their desperation and guilt driving them to God falling on His merciful gift of the Christ, the promised Redeemer, celebrated at Christmas. The faithful Jews who understood this, and there were faithful Jews in the Old Testament who we could say, like we are called Jews by the, according to the Apostle Paul, we could call them Christians because they were saved by looking ahead at the coming Messiah Redeemer, the Christ Child. They were Christians by believing that God was sending that Redeemer. Whereas we are saved by looking back at the Christ who's already come. Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus, the Savior, Messiah, Redeemer, Savior. The faithful Jews who understood this placed their hope in the same Savior that we have. Now, admittedly, they were few in number, which is why the Old Testament uh, name for them is the remnant. You had all the populations of these people called the children of God in Israel, but only of them were the remnant. There was a small part that actually believed, and that shouldn't surprise us in the least, because today these are roughly equivalent to the waywardness of the Christian church. There's only today roughly about a million Messianic Jews in the world. That means those are people who are Jewish, but believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, just as was prophesied throughout their Old Testament. And the wayward church today, we can too speak of the remnant of true believers within the Christian church and Christian denominations, those who believe in the God of the Bible, not the God of one's own creation or choosing. And in fairness, I have to tell you that the rabbi that you listened to this morning, um, I don't know what her particular brand of Judaism is, but just like Christians, there's all these different brands, if you will, or denominations. Same thing within Judaism. And just by her saying the myth and calling it a myth, I can tell you authoritatively she is of one of the very liberal, and unfortunately most of the Judaistic sects today are very liberal, just like the the many pseudo-Christian churches today, which are liberal, don't believe hardly anything that's in the Bible. They just make it up as they go along, and they pick and choose what they want to believe. And so this woman, unfortunately, was of, of that liberal type. But there are true believers in Christ called Messianic.
Messianic Jews today. And they still practice the Jewish religion as far as the festivals and the celebrations and those remembrances. But they remember them and celebrate them with the Christian meaning that the Bible gives to them and intended for them to have, which is why God gave them in the first place. The church, the Christian church today is truly ever so wayward. The ones that Paul calls the false circumcision, they didn't get the whole significance of their prophets and their writings and the sacrificial system that God blessed them with. They didn't get that any more than the liberal Christian denominations or the wayward church today understands the Bible. So Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, is born Christmas morning. The Jewish Messiah is the reason for the season. And now all who fall before the throne of God are more Jewish than the Jews who are Jews by birth, but who do not know the Savior, Messiah Jesus. Which is exactly why Paul writes what he does to the Romans in chapter 2, verse 28. Here's what he says. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and his circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Whether it is true or not, whether Christmas is true or not, is everything... It isn't just a self-help proclamation in the power of positive thinking. And the Apostle Paul makes it very clear in another letter to the church of Corinth. And they were discussing whether the resurrection was real or not. And some were saying, no, there is no resurrection. But just Jesus, yeah, this Jesus, he's cool, he's good. You know, you want to believe in Jesus, that, 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 that good deed doer and, you know, the prince of peace and, you know, the man of sorrows and the one who everybody supposedly reveres and astounds and a great teacher and all that kind and compassionate. Yeah, but no, he didn't raise from the dead. Re- hear what Paul says. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, meaning it, if the benefit of Jesus was only that he came and he was a good example, We are of all men most to be pitied. If that's all Jesus was, and the Christmas story, the incarnation of God become a man, is just a myth and a story, although Jesus is real and a good man, and that's who we believe in, then we are to be pitied more than anyone. For since, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, Paul adds, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by one man, referring to Adam, came death, by another man, referring to Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. 
And whether it's true or not just doesn't matter. What matters is that it makes you feel good. And you can go around and enjoy this season of, of happiness and joyful songs and everything else. And that's the value of Christmas. No, if that's what you believe, then you are to be pitied more than anybody. But as good, faithful Jews of the heart and of the spirit, we believe Yeshua HaMashiach was born of the Virgin Mary, was God Emmanuel, Emmanuel, the Hebrew God with us. Not God is with us, interestingly enough. Say, what's the difference? God is with us like, you know, God is with us today. God is with us right now. You know, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, you know, there am I in the midst of you, right? Okay, God is with us, but no, Emmanuel means God with us. God was physically embodied in that human Jesus, 100% man, 100% God, and he came to live that life of perfection. He was born specifically to die, to die in your place and mine, to satisfy once for all that anger of God. God against sin and judgment and he took it all upon himself and he said this was my delight in coming to do this for you I give you my perfection I take your sin upon myself and this is the joy of the season if you do not know this Jesus if you know some kind of iteration of Jesus you're believing in absolute worthless lie And God would rather have you to know that today, as he said to the thief on the cross, you will be with me in paradise. Do you believe this Jesus, this Savior? Don't leave this place today without putting your life in his hands and saying, yes, I want the merriest Christmas I've ever had. Now I know. Let me have you stand. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for the clarity of your words. And Lord, so I say, Baruch Hashem, Kavod Malkuto Laolam Va'ed. Blessed be the name of the Lord now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.